Did you know 90% of top performers have a high emotional intelligence and a higher than average annual income? As one of the most highly valued skill sets, emotional intelligence or EI is what distinguishes outstanding leaders. Deepen your EI skills today with the Daniel Goleman Emotional Intelligence course, a 12-week online course to develop your inner capacity, become a stellar leader, and build high-performance teams. Save your seat and $50 with the coupon code PODCAST. Learn more at courses.keystepmedia.com. That's courses.key stepmedia.com. Don't forget to enter coupon code PODCAST at checkout for $50 off your registration. When do you have the hardest time staying focused? Probably when I'm either in class or when... I'm uh, I'm eating breakfast. What makes you feel distracted when you're in class? That I sit next to one of my best friends, Jemaya, and she's uh, one of the silliest persons in my class. She's one of the silliest people in your class. That's yes. awesome. And what makes you feel distracted at breakfast? Other people are around me and talking. When do you feel like you can pay the most attention? In football and when... I'm doing work. When you're doing work, what does it look like or feel like to be focused? It feels like you are like in the the thing that you're working on and you can't stop. Mm, Nice. You're listening to First Person Plural, EI and Beyond. I'm Hanuman Goleman, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Daniel Goleman and Elizabeth Solomon. What is up, Dan and Liz? (laughs) What is up, Hanuman and Dan? (laughs) Good. Yeah, lovely to (laughs) see you all. Nice to be with you both. In this episode, we're continuing the conversation from last episode with Demishi Ja, where she broke down the key attention systems and shared some of the activities people can do to strengthen their overall focus and attention. Up next, we're looking at focus and attention when it's applied to organizational systems. That's right. Today, we're speaking with George Pitagorsky, who reflects on his more than 40 years of experience working within a wide range of industries and what he learned about the ways in which large or growing organizations can prioritize their attention within the system to work towards a collective goal. I know as a group, we're all dedicated meditators. So I wonder, do you notice a distinct difference between your ability to focus when you're in practice with meditation, when, you, when you've been doing it a lot, or uh, versus when you're out of practice? And I wonder what the difference is and how, how that affects you. Well, I think it's like any skill. You know, the more you practice, the better you get. And if you lapse, then your abilities are going to diminish. That's what I find. I mean, if I do a retreat, wow, uh, my focus is really pretty strong. And 
when I don't, my mindful awareness lapses and I just, you know, fall back into ordinary mind. Yeah, I would say that's true. And I'd say it, it makes a huge difference for me to actually begin my day by, by gathering my attention and gathering my focus. And even if that's just as simple as sitting down and doing a scan of my body and really becoming embodied in that way and understanding sort of how I'm doing and where I am in time and space, that makes it just a huge difference within that 24 hour period that follows. I want to offer here that as somebody who is really out of practice right now in my meditation practice, it's very clear that my attention is far less harnessable than, than otherwise. You know, one of the things we talked about with Anishi Jha in our last episode, and we talk about again here with George is um, the minimum viable amount of time that one can spend meditating in order to reap the benefits. And I'm wondering actually, um, Dan, what you have to say about that, um, especially since you and Richie looked at this in your book, Altered Traits. Yeah, when, when we did Altered Traits, we were reviewing the scientific literature on meditation, which shows very clearly there's a dose-response relationship. The more you do it, the better you get. Uh, however, I don't know that there's a minimum. Uh, our uh, slogan is, the best meditation is the one you'll do. That varies, you know, according to our day and our circumstances and our commitments and so on. So I'd say if you can do two minutes, great. If you can do 10 minutes, greater. If you can do yeah. more, even better. Uh, but don't judge yourself for not having a lot of time to meditate. I love that you said that because it's been a huge turning point for me. I think I can be a bit of a um, extremist when I take something on and I'm committing to it, right? I'm like, okay, I got to do the maximum. Like if I'm going to run, it's got to be multiple miles a day. Um, all or nothing. It's an all or nothing, right? But um, I do find that that's true, that actually, even if I can take like a minute in between meetings to just have a mindful moment and breathe, that there's actually a huge uh, ripple effect of that. Well, this is why I feel it's so important to do what we do at the beginning of our, our meetings, it, which is just take a minute to sit silently uh, for for exactly that reason, to gather ourselves, to arrive. You know, we, we all come from, especially on Zoom, we're all in our own worlds and we come to these computers and we have no idea where everybody has just arrived from. It both serves this internal purpose of arriving and gathering ourselves, but also it serves the purpose of establishing a space together, a collective uh, attention that, that we're, we're growing together. I'm curious, Liz and Dan, what if you have specific techniques or practices that you use when you know that you have to focus, that you have a big talk or a big project coming up, is there, are there some specific practices that you do to get ready for those? I'm often giving talks or lectures or even on Zoom or virtually, and uh, I'd like to take a few minutes just before, just to quiet my mind. Uh, and I, I don't think it matters what you do if, you know, you can watch your breath or some people like a mantra or just be still or be, have some panoramic awareness, whatever you do, that's going to quiet things down. Uh, my own feeling is it leaves you in the best place for whatever's coming next. Liz? Thinking of that example of before I'm about to do something that, um, like before I'm about to facilitate or even go into a coaching session, a simple practice for me is 
just doing some breath work. And so it's just like inhaling for a count of five, holding for a count of five, exhaling for a count of five. And for some reason, I've always found a lot of comfort in counting. Like even when um, I was in labor, when I had my daughter, I, I counted my way through contractions and something about that counting actually really helps me collect myself and focus and um, let go of, of distraction and rumination. That reminds me of a mindfulness practice that Joseph Goldstein offered in his uh, initial book, The Experience of Insight, that's just counting to 10 and uh, each breath, one breath, two breath. And when you notice that you're not aware, then you start back at one. And it seems so, it sounds so simple, but the closer you notice, the more you notice how often you're not being aware. And so uh, getting up to 10 is actually quite difficult. So the directions are simple, simple instructions, but very powerful practice. Reminds me of something, uh, when people start meditating, they often say, I can't do this. My mind is nuts. Uh, But that just actually means you're noticing for the first time how nuts our minds really are. Yes. So important. That's so important. People think they can't do it because they're not able to concentrate, but that's our regular state and we're just noticing. And it gets be- you get better at it the more you do it. That's so important. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is. I think that's the misconception in some way that mindfulness is trying to achieve an absence of thought entirely or, you know, instead of looking at it like a consistent uh, training practice of just bringing attention back and bringing attention back and bringing it back. It's practice. So this was such a fantastic interview with George. I'm really excited to share it with with everybody. Here we go. George Pitagorsky is a master facilitator, change agent, coach, meditation teacher, and consultant with more than 40 years experience working with individuals interested in applying mindfulness and open-minded systems and process thinking in daily life. A champion of servant leadership, he has worked in organizations managing change and performance improvement with a special focus on project, engagement, and service management. He has served as CIO for a multi-billion dollar organization and as director of product development for an international training organization, as well as principal in two technology startups. George is the author of many books, papers, and articles, including The Zen Approach to Project Management, Working from Your Center to Manage Expectations and Performance. He has spoken internationally at conferences and for firms, including Microsoft, Nokia, and major international financial institutions. Let's welcome George. And I'm wondering if you could start just by telling our listeners a little bit about what you do um, as you've done many things over the years, but what you're focused on now. What I'm focused on now is a combination of writing, uh, coaching, and um, uh, some speaking engagements and training. So, that I've been focused on that since probably the beginning of the COVID uh, period, uh, which has been a challenge. And uh, so that, that's the current, uh, the current focus. And particularly uh, the uh, focus of the coaching, training, and so forth is uh, how, do, how does one apply uh, mindful awareness, self-awareness to their day-to-day lives 
with a particular uh, emphasis on organizations and careers and jobs and stuff like that, but not limited to that. Can you tell us a little bit about what that looks like? So some of the things that you're working with your with your clients on? Well, I have uh, one coaching client that uh, is a, uh, I guess, upper middle level uh, uh, manager in a uh, 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 financial service organization. And uh, her presenting issue was about uh, how to overcome uh, perfect, uh, perfectionism and uh, the various stresses that uh, are associated with that. Uh, and uh, so the, the work that I've been doing with her started out as a uh, couple of weeks, and uh, then uh, now it's been over two years. And uh, a lot of what uh, we're focusing on is the uh, ability to step back uh, on a personal level and really come in touch with uh, one's inner self, one's uh, you know real awareness, and uh, through that uh, to be able to address not only her perfectionism but a number of other issues that uh, crop up in her life. This is something that Amishi and Dan were talking about, um, as you know. Sometimes it's referred to standing on the balcony and and panning out in order to see kind of all the elements at play with a, a sense of with no need to judge or dissect. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm curious if you can just talk a little bit about your own background in emotional intelligence and mindfulness and systems thinking and taking a sort of systems awareness. Uh, Well, uh, my background in uh, mindfulness, uh, we'll start with that, uh, is that uh, I started doing mindfulness meditation in uh, 1975, 76 uh, at Naropa Institute, where I was fortunate enough to find Joseph Goldstein teaching a uh, six-week course. So so that was the beginning of that. But prior to that, I had been involved in... uh, Kundalini yoga and a number of other related uh, psychological and uh, uh, at that time uh, kind of new agey stuff and uh, a little bit of uh, mind bending uh, different things. So uh, that that background has merged with a uh, an awareness of systems and systems thinking, which goes back to uh, the mid-60s when I became a computer programmer, having absolutely no clue what that meant uh, at the time. But uh, so I entered a career in the, uh, quote, systems business. And the uh, systems business uh, for me turned out to be this incredibly wonderful, rich space where I could actually see that all of it is just systems and processes within systems. And uh, it's very liberating to have that kind of view because as you say, it puts you on the balcony and you can now see what's going on and you can choose where one can focus and where one doesn't need to focus and what uh, influences each action is taking and so forth. So that goes back to the, uh, to the mid sixties. And then it's been refreshed over and over again with uh, uh, personal experiences, business experiences as a uh, process management uh, experts or, and project management expert, uh, applying the combination 
of systems and process thinking with the mindfulness awareness uh, world and seeing that, uh, for example, I've uh, kind of become convinced that uh, when we talk about wisdom teachings in the uh, context of mindfulness and awareness, that we're really talking about systems and process thinking. That mm. the more we can see the world, the universe as a, an intersection of multiple systems within a system, within a system, within a system, within a system, ad you know, infinitum, uh, the more we liberate ourselves from thinking from a egocentric point of view. And how does that ability in your experience um, map to performance? What's possible? What becomes possible when you can take that wider perspective and see the interconnectedness? Well, one, uh, you know, performance, hinges on one's ability to uh, one be focused and and uh, concentrated on a particular piece of work that needs to be done on whatever one is doing but also seeing that in the context of the broader system so in a uh, in a business context in an organization one might be very well performing on a particular task that has absolutely no relevance on the organizational level. So the ability to see the bigger picture, to see the system, to see where one fits in that system is now uh, giving a person not only the ability to be more focused on what they're doing, but also to recognize whether that focus is warranted or not warranted. I'm thinking a little bit as you're talking about, um, you know, Dan's model of EI and thinking about organizational awareness, which is kind of one of the competences that gets at what you're talking about of being able to see how things connect and where we Mm -hmm. can sort of tie in or pull potential levers to meet our goals and aims. And I'm wondering when you are working within organizations and you're talking about the ability to see the system and understand the system, Is there anything to say about whose responsibility that is in terms of, is it the individual, their responsibility to look out and to try and understand the system, or is it the system's responsibility to deliver certain knowledge and training to the individual? And what is the interplay of those two things? In my opinion, it's both and, that uh, the individual has the responsibility if he or she is aware of of the need to... uh, seek out more and more information about the nature of his or her environment. The uh, system, the organization has the responsibility, if it's an organization as opposed to a family or uh, even a community, uh, has the responsibility to train and to build awareness. And the two things coming together, uh, happy marriage. The reality that I've seen in in clients and in organizations that I've actually been employed in uh, is that uh, many individuals don't have the awareness of the need for a uh, systems-oriented view. And many organizations don't have a clue about how to uh, give that to the people in them. And primarily because the individuals who are running this system are clueless. So I've been 
kind of immersed in non-dual uh, teachings for the, you know, for the past 30 years or whatever, uh, or more. Uh, so, you know, we had this, this interesting interplay between ego and non-ego, ego and system. And uh, in that interplay, it's very important to recognize the, uh, the, the relative reality of the ego. And if we want to operate in the world, we need to hone our ego. We need to be more effective in using it as a tool as opposed to being used by it. So we don't want the ego to be in charge. We want the ego to be very, very effective, happy, all of that stuff, but recognizing its context. Yeah, I'm wondering, George, if you can just tell, tell us a little bit about what you mean when you're talking uh, well, about ego. Again, it's, it's one of those words that has like 10,000 definitions. But uh, the way I'm using it here is the, uh, the, the personality, the mindset that's associated with the individual uh, when the individual identifies with him or herself. Yeah, and could you talk a little bit about like what a um, sort of healthy, balanced um, use of the ego looks like versus an imbalanced? Well, uh, an imbalanced use of the ego or the ego using one is uh, where one is driven into reactive behavior by whatever kinds of stimuli or, or one is faced with. So in EI terms, for example, one would not have self-awareness as a means for uh, doing self-management if the ego is too strongly identified with, because the ego finds it difficult to actually be aware of itself. When it's aware of itself, it's, it's kind of overly confused and biased. I was just thinking as you were talking a little bit about confirmation bias and the way that confirmation bias keeps us from being able to take that wider balcony view. And I'm wondering right. if there's um, anything you want to say or, or comment on about that. All I can say is that uh, the ego wants to continuously confirm its place, its its reality. And this, you know, in, in uh, some th thought systems, is the direct cause of all suffering. Hmm. So hmm. we constantly spend our time confirming this illusion of an ego identity that's in charge of everything and at the center of the world. Hmm. So if we can somehow give up that bias, somehow cut the roots of that, now we're in a better position to perform. Because no longer are we reactive, we can become responsive. And that responsiveness allows us to now see the big picture, see where we are in that big picture, see how we can serve more effectively. Because that's really what performance is in, in, you know, in the world. You've worked in some incredibly complex systems, um, and I would love to hear you talk a little bit about what it is to work in a complex system, so both your personal experience and then also what it is to coach and help develop uh, leaders within some of these complex systems. 
it's much easier and much more uh, um, pleasant to coach than to work in those systems. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And that that is some truth. So uh, my experience of those complex environments is that one, they are complex. And because they're complex, there's a great deal of uncertainty and ambiguity associated with them. And the uncertainty and ambiguity is multiplied by the degree to which leadership and the people in the rank and file are not aware of their own positions and they're not self-aware. So, uh, so now you've got this complex, ambiguous environment where change is the only you know, thing that, uh, that one can rely on. And people are expected to perform 100% when they don't even know what 100% means or what their goals and objectives really are. Then you bring in like lack of values or values that are, you know, that are particularly not, uh, to my mind, uh, attractive values to have. Uh, and then the, the conflict that arises because of one's individual values being confronted with values that they might not be uh, aligned with. Uh, so you've got that going on. And then, you know, all of the interpersonal relationship stuff that uh, that's happening. Uh, it's potentially a mess. That's the unhealthy environment. I've had the good fortune of also seeing you know, reasonably healthy environments where there is that awareness, where the values of the organization have been, uh, you know, articulated, their, you know, values are, are aligned with individual values. There's a sense of uh, uh, servant leadership as a quality of, of leadership. And that leads to, I think, far greater organizational performance than an unhealthy environment. I hear things like role clarity and clarity of objectives and goals and an alignment of individual and organizational purpose. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about how do you, how does one cultivate mindfulness and systems and process thinking, um, particularly in one of these more complex environments that might not be functioning um, as healthily? Well, I think it varies from organization to organization. So in one, in one possibility, you have a, a relatively high-level leader who recognizes the benefits associated with uh, these things, mindfulness and awareness and, and all of that. So uh, in that case, that individual can have enough uh, influence to now bring in a training, bring in awareness uh, raising, and and then that kind of goes down into the organization. In other circumstances, the senior leadership may not have that awareness, but individuals start to appear with that awareness. And more and more, because mindfulness has become like, uh, you know, the new yoga, very, very popular and all of that. Uh, People are becoming more and more aware of it. They're going out and learning how to practice mindfulness meditation and bring that to the the workplace. And 
because there's a uh, an improvement in individual uh, uh, performance. Other people start to look at it, so it, it starts to build that way. Uh, and then, of course, both ends. You have some degree of uh, a leadership becoming more aware because of the uh, the popularity of mindfulness training and in emotional intelligence, the same same kind of thing. And that coupled with actual benefits being shown at the performance level, you now have a growing possibility of uh, bringing that to, to the organization as a whole. Though uh, so there's an issue. One, one part of the issue is that there are people who think that, uh, for example, mindfulness meditation is some kind of a religious thing. Is some kind of a uh, you know uh, an invasion of personal privacy, so they and including uh, you know EI for example has there's been pushback on that and saying you know like this is this is who I am I'm you know this volatile angry person and uh, if you don't like it you know leave you know uh, don't bother me with this kind of uh, training I'm self aware enough you know so there's that component that's there. Uh, so one has to be relatively subtle in this. And more and more, I come back to what's the benefit? And what are the liabilities of not approaching that benefit? Yeah, I, I love that you brought this up, because I one of the things I'm curious to ask you is, you know, as a as a multi-decade practitioner who's been working in organizations and bridging mindfulness and emotional intelligence and processes and uh, systems thinking, I'm wondering how you talk about these things within organizations, how you might've talked about them 30 years ago versus how you talk about them now um, and what your own journey has been integrating these three things. Yeah. Uh, in the beginning, I was really about explicit. And, you know, coming off with, uh, you know, meditation wasn't necessarily mindfulness meditation, but meditation is the, you know, the saving grace of, uh, of the world. Uh, if you're not meditating, you're going to, you know, you're never going to really be anything. Uh, that doesn't go well. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you'll find one or two people who get that and, uh, you know, they become acolytes. So, uh but then more and more, I became uh, reasonably convinced that uh, the need is to not focus on the method, but to focus on the result. Mm -hmm. And focusing on the result means to give people a sense of why they would want to do anything to mm -hmm. change their current situation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it comes down to the first noble truth being recognized. So what's the problem? Is there a problem? If there's no problem, then there's no problem. Yeah. If there's a yeah. problem now, what, what can you do about it? What, what's its nature? And this comes into process thinking. You know, what is the process of problem solving? And how do you bring that into play in this context of applying self-awareness, emotional intelligence, mindfulness, focus, 
When you're talking about problem solving, I'm sort of thinking about, um, you know, what it is to have a sphere and be able to turn it around and look at look at something through multiple angles and not get too attached, right? This goes back mm -hmm. to this piece around the ego, not to get too attached to having an answer preemptively or um, mm -hmm. being attached to one one specific outcome. And I'm wondering, how do you work with people? What is a practice that you might even give someone to help them begin to cultivate that spaciousness that is needed in order to solve problems? Well, I generally will begin depending on the individual or the team. I mean, sometimes I'll be working with a, a small group of people. Uh, but the starting point is if they're aware of the need for taking multiple perspectives on something, then I will teach them how to practice mindfulness meditation. So I'll say, you know, if you really want to get this idea of having multiple perspectives, then you have to step back from your perspective long enough to see the bigger picture. How do you do that? Well, you cultivate a mindset that allows you to uh, objectively observe everything that's happening in and around you. And from there, you know, the, how do you, what's the technique? So that's one aspect of it. But then we also have to have the sense that uh, uh, a lot of people are not necessarily ready for that degree of explicit uh, technique. So there are many, many other uh, metaphors that can be used. There's, uh, I don't know if you were, uh, Edward de Bono, uh, who's uh, got six, the six hats method. It's, you know, one of these things goes back to the 1980s. And he's basically saying, you got a problem or an issue, put on six different thinking hats. And one is creativity, one is negative, one is positive, one is process and so forth. I don't remember all of six offhand, but uh, so this has been around forever. It's got nothing to do with meditation, but it does bring home the notion that I can change my perspective in a very concrete way. So I will use that often as a way of getting into the concept of taking multiple perspectives on a problem or an issue. And by doing that, you almost immediately take the person a step back from him or herself. Their biases start to fall away because they say, oh, my bias is in this hat space. Mm. Um, ignoring that hat space. Obviously, the world has always had a high level of complexity, but uh, you know it continues to increase with technology. And I'm also just thinking a little bit about the interplay of politics with organizational culture right now. I'm thinking a little bit about um, the big debate right now around vaccines, for example within organizations having it be mandated to be vaccinated. Um, and I'm curious, as you're talking about being able to sort of pan out and see the bigger picture versus panning in and sort of operating from a, maybe a more limited point of view, how you feel like that is um, relevant to some of these conversations? Well, I think it's, it's very relevant. I mean, it's basically, uh... What I'm finding is that uh, many people are just so into their own uh, belief systems around this 
that it becomes impossible for them to do anything but argue. And they, they're not even into arguing. They're into just writing off anybody that's not agreeing with them. Uh, and on both sides of the issue, or on all sides, there are multiple sides of the issue. I was going to say, what kind of information do we, does everyone have access to, right? As we're talking about exactly. widening perspective, it means taking in as much information as possible in the most unbiased way possible. Now, even more than probably it was in the past, though I'm not so sure about that, uh, of people not having a sense of the difference between fact and opinion. Hmm. So there is a big problem when someone is taking an opinion and assuming that it's a fact. And I think that this has always been, you know, the case. I mean, I've seen it in, you know, in very narrow circumstances around designing assist, you know, a, a procedural systems. This person has a strong opinion, place of authority, is not interested in seeing whether or not that opinion has any basis in fact, and will now drive the design towards that. Mm. Often discovering after the design has been implemented that doesn't work. Mm. You know, so I, I think this is a, uh, is a fundamental problem. Um, when I step back, I'm really frightened. You know, the ego part of me is frightened when I step back because I see this uh, quickening of chaos that's taking place. Now I step back from my ego and I say, well, you know, in the end, it doesn't really matter that much. It's just all emptiness and, and clarity. <laughs> in the end, I'm just a soul that goes back into the void. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, yeah. so, so why worry? You know, it's yeah. like, uh, uh, yeah. but at the same time, you know, as we were saying before, there is this, this ego. And if we want to live in the world and be of service, we've got to take some of that fear and uh, anxiety and channel it into a you know, place where hopefully it'll make some degree of difference. You know, and more and more, I come to this next level of recognizing that not only do we have to recognize or acknowledge the fact that there are others besides me. So I'm not just this one ego and everybody else is, is you know, kind of in my constellation, but that we have to get to that point where we recognize that there's an integration of all of us. It's no longer me and them. It's us. And I think, you know, it, to some degree, the name of uh, first person plural is really gets at that. It's this notion of us. And us becomes the universe. It's not just us people. It's us people. It's us animals. It's us, you know, whatever. You know, it's the whole shebang, so to speak. Uh, so given that, now we start to lose not only the sense of a, a, uh, a central ego, but we start to lose the sense of an ego at all. Can we get to that place where we see that the phenomena that is causing our reactions, our anxieties and so forth, they're always going to be there. And that if we let them pass through as if we were completely permeable, and all of this stuff was just happening and passing through. And 
not really affecting who we essentially are, then we have some degree of freedom. And from mm. there, we are in a better position to be effectively active. I love what you're saying because you're getting into um, being aware of that which is consistent within us, that which is very vast, but which is sort of ever, ever alive and ever consistent. How have you seen the cultivation of this self-awareness help people navigate conflicts um, more fluidly? Is there a story that you can tell there, an example that you can give? The best example is me. You know, it's like at, at uh, many different dimensions of conflict in my life uh, where I have you know, staunchly uh, defended my position and, uh, you know, it was convinced that everybody else was completely wrong. And now being able to have that sense of uh, the illusory nature of my own uh, being and the degree to which my uh, ego mind, my, uh, my thinking mind is very, very good at deluding me, I now become much more open to the positions of others, to what they're saying, to what they're thinking, what they're feeling. And through that, empathy, compassion starts to, uh, you know, starts to appear. And with empathy and compassion, including empathy and compassion for oneself, and the sense of confidence in one's ability to see what's going on, now you have the ability to deal with conflict in a, in a more effective way. You know, it, it's been my experience that as one becomes more and more mindful uh, through practice, that, that quality starts to seep in on a very natural basis so that we no longer are, uh, you know, are needing to meditate so, so much as to be in a non-meditative state in which we can more easily recognize the moments when we realize that we've been stuck or that we are stuck. And as soon as we realize that, as soon as we get that, that, you know, that moment of, uh, of clarity, we're not stuck any longer. So that takes, you know, I think it takes some, you know, for some people, maybe it's completely natural. For me, it was not natural. You know, it was something that I needed to cultivate. And, you know, I'm happy to say that I've had, you know, 50 some odd years of uh, the ability to cultivate it, and it actually works. Uh, so. Ta-da! <laughs> <laughs> I want to say, you know, George, I think as you're saying 50 some odd years of, of practicing and cultivating, um, I want to recognize that that could be, that is, I think that is a little daunting for, for many people, right? And that there's this conception that in order to begin to train our focus and attention through mindfulness, we need to have a, you know, a sitting practice that's an hour, two hours, three hours a day when actually it's really hard for some people to even sit for, for, for yeah. five minutes, right? And yeah. I'm wondering what you, especially working with leaders, with organizations, um, you know, Amishi, Ja, and Dan talked about this a little bit in our first segment of what is the minimum threshold of practice that someone can start with to be yeah. able to reap benefits of the practice? I tell many, many people that they don't have to meditate at all in a formal way. So I break meditation down into formal and informal and start with the informal. When the telephone rings, let it ring three times. And during those three rings, 
come in touch with your body, come in touch with your breath, and then answer the phone. That's all that's required. Now, if you want to go faster and further, then we can add in some uh, more formal techniques that will train the mind to be more concentrated and more open and mindful. I'm curious to ask too, I think, you know, there's this piece um, that we haven't called out explicitly, but it's this, you know, if we're thinking about all of existence or reality being like a series of nesting dolls, right? From the individual being at the very center, um, or we could argue the other way around, but individual, you know, perhaps family system out from there, then we're looking into the, the larger community et cetera, et cetera, all the way out, right? As far as you want to go into, into the very vastness of the universe. And I'm thinking about, you know, there's, there's a mirroring that what happens in us is what's happening in the system as well, right? And that we come to understand our surroundings through an understanding of the self. And so I'm actually wondering, George, if you can speak a little bit to that and like, what is the importance of understanding how our minds work, um, how our ego works, um, how we devise rules that may or may not be, that may, they may indeed be arbitrary, but just based in our righteousness or our own positioning. And how does that allow us to go out and understand the system more and actually shift the system in some way? Yeah. It's interesting. I, I'm actually in the middle, I write this, uh, an article a month for my newsletter. And uh, this current article is uh, intertwining a number of the things that uh, you know that this conversation uh, brings up, and particularly the uh, the need for addressing what gets in the way, and uh, it brings in the poisons, the uh, you know the ignorance, uh, greed, and hatred as a uh, as the fundamental things that get in the way, and unless people can deal with the the first one, the ignorance, which implies that getting to know oneself, the ability to self for introspection. The, uh, there's no hope for getting rid of the greed and the, uh, and the hatred. Mm. So now, big issue, which is, you know, how do you feel when somebody says, you know, you're ignorant? Right. How many people are going to really own up to their own ignorance? Only those who are not so ignorant. Or, or only those that can separate the fact from the judgment, right? Yes. Because there's one thing of saying, I am ignorant. There are things I do not know. And then yes. there's what the mind does, which is to say I'm ignorant and therefore I'm a bad person, right? Yes. And that's, that's exactly. where I think we get very, yeah, very yeah. confused. So we get confused. So now, you know, going back to this question of, you know, who's responsible? You know, is it the system that, that, that should be doing something different to cut through uh, you know, greed and, uh, and and so forth. I think that there's a great place for that. And actually, one of the more hopeful things is the uh, what is it ESG uh, uh, programs that are that are appearing in more and more organizations and and on the financial level, which is you know a driver for organizational thinking. So you've got this this awareness of the need for environmental, uh, social, and governance related activities to add in. So it's not just profits now. It's how does the organization and its effectiveness in the world make things better for everybody? 
-hmm. not just the shareholders. Mm -hmm. That's a major step forward. Can you talk a little bit about this? Because it's an interesting thing, I think, that um, particularly when we're talking about the ESGs or the purpose movement at large, right? Is mm-hmm. there's I think there's this whole debate of like, is it truly meaningful or purposeful if there's an element of self-interest um, that is acting as a motivator? And I'm just curious what you have to say about that. I personally don't think there's anything wrong with uh, self-interest. I mean, you know, as we've been saying, it's like you don't want to deny the fact that you are a self, you are a, you know, you have this personality, you have this body and all of that stuff. Uh, So when you apply compassion and uh, empathy, it's inclusive of you. So having that kind of self-interest and marrying it with the uh, ability to see the bigger picture and be also inclusive of, of everyone else, I think that's a good thing. So we have to recognize where individual greed is getting in the way of the collective uh, benefit, you know, the benefits of the collective and where the benefits of the collective is getting in the way of individual uh, prosperity and and happiness in life. This both and nature makes me think of just focus in general. I mean, I think the metaphor is that, you know, the analogy, so to speak, is that we can either focus in in a very directed point, i.e., our self, the most kind of right. internal point, or we can widen our focus as wide as possible. And both are needed actually, like a, to have to have a strong focus requires being focused in both of those ways. Yes. I'm wondering and thinking about um, organizations and thinking about size and scale, at what point does um, focus and attention become too dispersed to be successful? Well, you know, when we talk about focus and attention and limited to the focus and attention on oneself, uh, I think that there's no size that, uh, that ever uh, can't be accommodated because it's a very personal thing. It's, it's basically recognizing that uh, if I want to be any part of any system and I want to be effective in that, then I need to focus on myself. I need to to have that. Uh, if we start to look at some other aspects of focus, you know, in an organization, there's a focus on uh, a project, for example. You need that focus in order to accomplish just about anything. Mm-hmm. At the same time, if your focus is too narrow and you're not really opening to the surroundings, then whatever you're doing may not align with the organization's mission and values and so forth. So there is this both end, and and it's a dynamic balance that's being created moment to moment. And the more people are aware of it, the more likely it is that it will actually come into this dynamic balance and and sustain it. Dan, this conversation with George really reminded me of your work on focus and what you talk about is a triple focus. We'd love to hear you just tell our audience about that a little bit. I feel strongly that every leader needs the capacity for triple focus. By triple focus, I mean knowing what's going on inside yourself, leading yourself first, focus inside, 
you can use that to manage yourself well, because then you're in a position to empathize, to tune into other people, to have relationships that work. If you're out of control, it's not going to happen in your relationships. But if you are attuned to what's going on inside, you can better empathize, you can better tune into the people around you. That's the second focus. And then the third focus is to the overall system that we're involved in. And here, I think George is spot on in saying that a leader who can articulate values or a mission or a sense of purpose that resonates with everyone else is going to get everyone to align what they do seamlessly. I think that's the healthiest environment where leaders tune into themselves, tune into relationships, and tune in to our collective mission. Yeah, and I would add to that that when we're talking about purpose, that's how we really draw a line of sight between the individual and the organization, and that in a thriving organization, purpose can be experienced on all three of those levels, right? So a clear sense of where I'm motivated, where I'm invested, where I feel like things are meaningful, and then having the actions um, and how I interact with my team mirror that and it all mapping to the, the larger purpose of the organization. Exactly. I've, I've been a part of organizations where the leadership team was not listening to the rest of the organization and not, not paying attention to, uh, to the organization itself, to the human experience of the organization. And we're focusing on the uh, business creation to the detriment of the humans who were a part of the organization. And, and it, it very quickly turns into a, a completely toxic environment. You know, in the last episode, Amishi was talking about the executive uh, part of our, our, our brain and uh, this aspect of our attention that is like an, an executive. And that executive needs to be both uh, holding the the values and the um, the uh, mission of the organization, but also needs to be listening to, uh, attending to the uh, organization itself as, as an entity, as well as the individuals that make up that organization. I think this also dovetails to what we were talking about um, in our first episode in the series of attention being a form of love, which I think it's also a form of respect, right? And I think that what you're talking about of listening to people within the organization, particularly people on the front line, this is why in organizations where leaders are, have a real practice of listening to people within the organization, we see that turnover is lower. We see that engagement is higher. We see that productivity is higher, right? It all dovetails back to this form of attention being a form of um, showing respect, really, and, and showing love and showing care. Just to add the triple focus uh, aspect of, of this, the uh, people who are heading organizations need to be attentive to all those pieces that we're talking about, but also need to understand the way that that organization is a part of a broader world and attentive to, uh, to the organization as in how it interacts with the rest of the world. It's, it's that, that systems um, aspect of it is, is a, the third part that we need to understand. And then bring that information back into the organization and integrate it as as a mission and and, uh, how we do it. 
you're a parent or educator, you may also be interested in the book The Triple Focus, A New Approach to Education. In it, Daniel Goleman and Peter Senge offer guidance on incorporating the focus-related skill sets self-awareness, other awareness, and systems awareness to help students navigate a fast-paced world of increasing distraction and to better understand the interconnections between people, ideas, and the planet. You can pick up a copy in our online store at keystepmedia.com shop. Thanks for listening to First Person Plural, EI and Beyond. Subscribe now and sign up for our newsletter to get notified as new episodes are released. This show is brought to you by our co-hosts, Daniel Goleman, Hanuman Goleman, and Elizabeth Solomon, and is sponsored by Keystep Media, your source for personal and professional development materials focused on mindfulness, leadership, and emotional intelligence. Special thanks to Michael, whose voice you heard at the top of the show, and to today's guest, George Pitagorsky. For guest bios, transcripts, and resources mentioned in today's episode, check out our episode notes on our website, firstpersonplural.com. This episode was written and produced by Elizabeth Solomon and me, Gabriela Acosta. Episode art and production support by Bryant Johnson. Music in this episode includes Tiny Footsteps in the Snow by BioUnit and theme music by Amber Ojeda. Until next time, be well. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate our show and submit a review. It helps us spread the word about the show. If you want to go the extra mile to support our show, you can become a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can get exclusive access to extended interviews and behind-the-scenes content. Sign up at patreon.com slash firstpersonplural.